Well, I am so glad you're here. Um, I, I'm not going to lie. I think I'd rather be outside. Uh, how about you? Anybody else? One of our greeters, I think, was kind of prodding me today saying, hey, we could just move church outside, right? I mean, we got this little, it'd be great. Uh, Jill mentioned kind of the changing of seasons, and uh, along with that, we were having a Discover Membership class today. There's 13 folks in Discover Membership class right now. They've been there since 9 a.m. That's just something to celebrate. Uh, More people are are seeking to link arms with us on mission uh, here in East Texas, and so I'm thrilled about that. We've got Easter coming. Uh, Easter is just a few weeks away. It's early this year. Uh, Just a heads up, we'll be doing two worship gatherings that day, 9 o'clock and 1030. So please make plans for you and your family to come along and worship with us on Easter. Uh, That would be wonderful. It's a new season in Connect Groups. Uh, Our Connect Groups just launched a new curriculum this year. Uh, If you're not in a Connect Group yet, it's a perfect time to jump in one. Uh, We're studying in Connect Groups the story of the Bible. A lot of people don't recognize this or realize it, but the Bible, this huge book, is made up of 66 different books that were written across multiple continents over the span of about 1,500 years by dozens of authors, and it all tells one story. That is a beautiful thing to recognize. Our groups are studying how that story is linked from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, and they began the study the very first day uh, by talking about the scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 16, excuse me, verse 16 and 17, which tell us that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And we talked about in our groups that idea that God uh, gave us the Bible as his revelation to us to be completely authoritative in our lives. But I just want to like pause on the very first word in verse 16, which is the word all, all scripture. And the reason I want to draw that out today is because we're going to cover a passage in Genesis that if you're new to the Bible, you're going to wonder What in the world did I just step into? This is a difficult passage. However, God put it there for a reason. So we're not going to skip past it. We're going to talk about it. Uh, It is, uh, you know, every word in our Bible is there for a reason. It's given directly by God to the authors of the Bible to be authoritative. And so it's arguably Genesis chapter 19, one of the darkest and most devious chapters in all the Bible. Now, it covers topics that are more than just uncomfortable. It covers topics that are reprehensible, uh, that are more than just uncomfortable, but it does it in a way to teach us a glorious truth about God and about how he relates to people who are desperately wicked. When we read what we're going to read in Genesis 19, I hope that you don't just think, oh, those people are bad. But I hope what happens is that God stirs something up in you to recognize the depths of your own depravity, your own sinfulness before God. But I tell you all this uh, to tell you, number one, we're not going to skip it. But number two is, by the way, my family's in the room. If your family's in the room, you don't need to fret. I've kind of tailored this sermon uh, to be appropriate for our family worship environment, okay? So there may be some things that are a little uncomfortable, but we're not going to go just all the way into that. 
I'm going to leave that to you. And you parents, if you need some help having conversations later on, our children's ministry is an incredible resource. Our youth ministry is an incredible resource uh, to help you navigate difficult spiritual conversations with your kids. In fact, the way we do this at Moberly is we want to empower you and equip you to have those spiritual conversations. So we, we're partners with you on this journey. And so we're there to help you out. But let me just point out two things before we dive in. Number one, uh, you've heard of fire and brimstone preachers. If you haven't been, if this is your first time to my really, you may not know that I'm not a fire and brimstone preacher, uh, but I typically am not just talking about God's judgment. However, uh, while not every sermon should be fire and brimstone, when the Bible specifically talks about fire and brimstone, we ought to talk about it as well. There is some of that in Genesis 19. Number two, the Bible doesn't shy away from talking about Uh, some of the darkest corners of human depravity. And I see this as good news. Uh, The the kinds of deplorable actions in Genesis 19 that we're gonna see are kin to the array of sinful choices that you and I are expected by culture to think as normative today. And so this is extremely relevant. When the Bible doesn't skirt over or skip past the darkest corners of human depravity, it shows an extreme relevance to our lives when it doesn't cut corners on difficult topics, but it also shows an extreme hope, an extreme hope to those of us who have been to the darkest corners of human depravity and for those of us who know people who are currently in them. And so I hope that's what you see today as we study in Genesis. But before we get to the kind of cautionary tale of chapter 19, uh, God and Abraham, you remember Abraham's kind of our main character in Genesis at the moment. God has covenanted with him, partnered with him to redeem humanity, to to bring humanity out of their sinfulness and back into a life of blessing to restore their relationship with God. That's what they're up to. Well, they're gonna have a conversation that reveals God's character at the end of chapter 18. And I want to read this uh, to you and then talk a little bit about it before we get all the way into chapter 19. So let's look together in our Bibles at Genesis chapter 18. And we're going to start in verse 16. It says, The men got up from there. It's talking about the angelic visitors that had visited Abraham and Sarah in their own house to deliver the news of promise that Sarah, about a year from now, will in fact bear a son. Sarah was barren, and God had been promising all along that their offspring would be a blessing to the entire world. Well, now they've, God has come, he's showed up, and he's got these messengers, and they've delivered this good news that they're going to have a baby in about a year's time. And then they had a meal together, and uh, there was this whole interaction at the beginning of chapter 18. But in verse 16, these angelic visitors got up from there and looked out over Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to see them off. Then the Lord said, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I've chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abram what he promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. I'll go down to see if what they've done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I'll find out. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. 
while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Abraham stepped forward and said, Will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham answered, since I've ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes, suppose the 50 righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? He replied, I will not destroy the city if I find 45 there. Then he spoke to him again, suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it on account of 40. And then he said, let my Lord not be angry, and I will speak further. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And then he said, since I ventured to speak to my Lord, suppose 20 are found there. And he replied, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry, and I'll speak one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, I will not destroy it on account of 10. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed and Abraham returned to his place. Now, some have called this passage, which is a prelude to chapter 19 and the destruction coming for Sodom and Gomorrah. Some have called this chapter, this passage, a, a negotiation between Abraham and God. But if that's true, I, the only lesson really learned here about negotiation is how not to negotiate. <laughs> Number one, like Abraham kind of stops short, right? Number two is God must be a terrible negotiator. Like he just keeps saying yes. I mean, that's like, that's negotiation 101 is don't say anything. God just says, yeah, I'll give you whatever you want, right? Righteous people, who cares what number of righteous people? I've spared the whole city on account of 50, 45, even 10. Terrible negotiation tactics. I think a better word to describe what's happening here in the context of God's covenant with Abraham to bless all the peoples of the earth through him and his offspring, what, Abraham is, what God is doing with Abraham is orienting him to his character. That in light of the context of his covenant relationship and his plan to bless all nations through him, Abraham needs to learn what is God like when it comes to sinful nations, when it comes to sinful humanity, when it comes to the judgment of sin, Abraham's being oriented through prayer to the mercy of God in light of God's judgment of sin, that both are held in tension in the character of God, both mercy and judgment. Abraham is searching for the answer to the question, what kind of judge is God? Is he vindictive? Is he short-tempered like some of the other pagan deities that we know would have been, they would have come across, uh, especially the Israelites as they've come out of Egypt and are moving toward the promised land through the wilderness? We know that people who are reading Genesis for the first time are encountering these kind of deities who are short-tempered and vindictive, who have no regard for humanity, 
regardless of how good or bad they are? So what kind of judge is God? Is he just? Is he merciful? And what does that look like? Uh, Dane Ortland points, points this out in a book called Gentle and Lowly, uh, read a couple years ago with our staff. I think it's a great book. You want to get kind of deeper into who is God, what's his character like. Uh, he has a chapter about this passage, and he says that uh, there's plenty of biblical evidence for God uh, being provoked to anger. And we'll see this dozens of times throughout the Old Testament, that God is provoked to anger. But not one single time does God ever have to be provoked to love or to mercy. He makes the argument that that is actually what comes most naturally to God. So yes, he is just. But first and foremost, he is compassionately merciful. He says, we tend to think that divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded, Divine mercy is slow to build, but it's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. This is who God is. Yes, he is just. Yes, sin must be punished. But all of that happens under the umbrella of God's compassionate love and mercy. Six times Abraham, Abraham petitions the Lord to spare the entire city of Sodom and, Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah on behalf of just a few righteous people. I imagine it like the image that Dane put in our heads about just the slightest balloon prick and what, does, what comes out of God most naturally is his mercy and kindness and compassion. I imagine Abram being oriented to the character of God. Have you ever seen those shows where uh, it was like old Nickelodeon shows and they would have something above and you prick it and either it was like confetti or slime or something would like come down on people. And I imagine Abram is like standing under the first one and he goes, okay, God, um, what kind of judge are you? Are you the kind of judge uh, that would spare the whole city for the sake of 50 righteous? okay, God is merciful. Okay, next one. Okay, God, are you the kind of God that would spare the whole city if maybe there was five less, if there were only 45? And all the way down to 10, six times, yes, Abraham is learning that God is first and foremost compassionately loving and merciful. And he's just. And his justice flows from his compassion. Did you catch uh, the, 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 quote, the quote in chapter 18 that God is the judge over all the earth? I just want you to hang on to that because we're going to see that show up again in chapter 19. So just hang there for a second. Hang on to it. Maybe put a pencil by it or something. So, Every time, love and mercy are God's immediate response. There's no hesitation whatsoever. God, will you rescue? Yes. God, will you, uh, will you spare the city on behalf of just a few? Yes. Every single time. God is eager to rescue. God is eager to bless. God is eager to redeem. He is slow to anger. He's patient. You remember when Lot first settled near Sodom? We covered this in chapter 13. It was about 25 years or so 
before this moment. Genesis told us in chapter 13, verse 13, when Lot made the decision to separate from Abram because they had too many things to take care of between the two of them, they really just needed to be apart. Lot had the opportunity to stay in Abram's Abram's household, in the household of blessing, in the household of promise, yet Lot chose to distance himself from blessing of his own volition. And he looked out into the plain and he saw what looked good to his own eyes and he chose this land to put his tent near Sodom. That happened in verse 13 of chapter 13 and God actually told us all the way back then, now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. This is 25 years before God shows up and responds to the outcry from the people of Sodom. The reality is that judgment against Sodom was a long time coming. We think that God was just like, wait, there's sin down there? Oh, I'm going to go wipe them all out. But what's really happened is God's plan to redeem and restore humanity, as God pursues humans, sinful humans, who had rebelled against him to restore them to relationship, a relationship of blessing and flourishing, that he was watching the sinfulness of of Sodom, and not just regular sinfulness, but immensely sinful Sodom, full of evil. And he's thinking, maybe they will see Abraham. Maybe they will see Lot. Maybe they will return. I'm going to be patiently waiting for them to turn from their wicked ways and return to me. And it doesn't happen. And their sin keeps compounding. But what we see is that God is not quick-tempered. God doesn't fly off the handle. God is patient. He's not wanting Sodom and Gomorrah to be destroyed. But he's just. And neither, in the same way that he's not quick-tempered, neither will God turn a blind eye to the atrocities of sin. We can take comfort in that. That's a hopeful reality for us. In the same way that the blood of Abel cried out from the ground in chapter 4 when he was murdered ruthlessly by his brother Cain, God didn't have to be there to witness it. The sin spoke for itself, crying out to God, and God responded by punishing Cain and driving him out to the east, the same thing happens here. The sin speaks for itself. It cries out to God. He must respond and he will not turn a blind eye to it. And so he comes in judgment. And as Abraham came to realize, even if he asked God for the city to be spared on account of one righteous person, God could be trusted because both God's judgment and his salvation are motivated by his compassionate love and mercy. So this is an orientation to who God is. Abraham is learning in covenant relationship that God can be trusted to do what's right and to do what's good, to do what's just and to do what's merciful. This is an orientation to who God is. Now, as we've said before, anytime this character Lot shows up, Abraham's nephew, all the way back to chapter 12, he's in contrast with Abraham. When we see Abraham's faithfulness, usually Lot's unfaithfulness is in clear view as a way to contrast 
which one we should be moving towards. It's essentially, there's two ways to live here. Chapter 18 is, do we respond to God like Abraham, orienting ourselves to his kindness and mercy and compassion in light of his judgment of sin? Or do we live like Lot? What will Lot do? Well, before we get into Lot in particular, let's look generally as the same angelic visitors show up on Lot's doorstep that showed up on Abraham's in chapter 18. And the story unfolds a little differently, revealing man's corruption. All right. We've seen God's character. Now we're going to see the reality of man's corruption. Look at the utter corruption of the city in chapter 19. It says, the two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed with his face to the ground and said, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house. Wash your feet and spend the night. Then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said, we would rather spend the night in the square. But he urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house. He prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them and they ate. This all sounds okay. Verse 4, before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. Now, the text does not mince words. The entire population of Sodom shows up on Lot's doorstep to act toward these messengers from God in the same way that they had acted toward God all along. Immensely sinful, great evil, perverted defilement of God's original intent. This is what they were after. Now, sexuality is part of God's good design for his people. But the people of Sodom had twisted sexuality, not to be glorifying to God, but to be gratifying to self. That is what informed all of their decisions. That is what led them to Lot's doorstep, and it it revealed a grief from God. God is not just angry at their sin. He's grieved because they've walked away from the way they were created to be and live and flourish. They've chosen their own path. They've chosen their own good, which is a far lesser good, not even a good, compared to the good that God had designed them for. So what's going to happen? Lot appears initially to almost be a victim Like an angry mob shows up, and and what's he going to do? Well, what happens is it actually reveals that the corruption of Sodom had already corrupted him. Look in verse 6, chapter 19. Lot went out to meet them at the entrance and shut the door behind them. He said, don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you, and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything else to these men, because they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of the way, they said, adding, this one came here as an alien, but he's acting like a judge. Remember that finger I told you to hold on chapter 18? 
now we'll do more harm to you than to them. And they put pressure on Lot and came up to break down the door. This is an intense, intense interchange. But all of it can be traced back to Lot's first decision to remove himself from the family of blessing. Remember back in chapter 13 when we talked about how we were first introduced to the city of Sodom and the men who were utterly evil, immensely sinful against God? Well, what happened in chapter 13 was that Lot removed himself from the household of blessing, from Abram's household, and settled near Sodom. In chapter 14, when this, uh, you know, the kings of the north came and had to rest, had, they had to kind of call out the kings of, uh, of this region where, you know, of Canaan, where there was a little battle happening and, and Abram comes in because he heard Lot was in trouble and Abram rescues Lot and drives away the kings of the north and there's an interchange with the king of Sodom. It's actually said in chapter 14 that Lot was now not just near Sodom, but he was a part of Sodom. So much so that the king of Sodom saw him as part of his own property. And then by the time we get to chapter 19, where do we find Lot? But sitting at the city gates, which in this ancient culture would have meant that Lot now held a seat of prominence in Sodom. Don't miss the movement here. That first Lot removes himself from the family of blessing and just settles near Sodom. And Genesis tells us the people of Sodom, they're immensely evil. Next thing we find is he's in Sodom. And then the next thing we see is he's leading Sodom. This is the reality. All of it can be traced back to this. And now we see, as even the men acknowledge it in verse 9, they say he came as an alien. Remember that in chapter 13. And now he's acting like a judge. It's the trajectory of sinfulness. That what starts with small compromises ends in complete corruption every time. Look at Lot's hypocrisy in verse 6. He says, Men, don't do this evil. Does he offer something good? No. He offers something equally, if not more evil. Take my daughters? What a failure of a father in this moment. It's a spiritual hypocrisy. It's a fatherly hypocrisy. It's evil, not just outside of his door, but in his house, and most importantly, in his heart. Sin, where it started as taking root near Sodom, has now taken root in Lot. He's completely compromised. And as if the evil he suggested was any more righteous or any less righteous, it's just unrighteousness is the definition of Lot's life in this moment. Righteousness does not exchange a greater evil for a lesser evil. Righteousness just does what's right before God. And this is the life that God is calling us to. But our tendency is to make small compromises. The warning is that the small compromises lead to complete corruption every single time. And so this is a cautionary tale in this sense. Compromise always is a sign of complete corruption. So if we contrast Abraham and Lot, the question is, 
Abraham is not perfect. He's had all kinds of issues. He's had ups and downs. He's had moments of faithfulness. He's had really bad moments of faithlessness. Yet here we see him orienting himself to the program of God, God's covenant relationship. Well, yes, he wants to be a blessing even to the Sodomites. I want to be a blessing to them. God, would you restore, would you rescue them? God, would you please spare them on behalf of just a few righteous? God says, yes, absolutely. So now Abram is in the program of God. I'm wanting to bless people. Lot, on the other hand, says, I want to protect myself. I want to take care of me, myself, and I. I I will even sacrifice my own family for my own preservation. And that is the unrighteous action. It's a small, it's a huge corruption that began with a small compromise. So we've seen God's righteousness. We've seen man's corruption, which is utter. It's deplorable. It's dark. But even still, we see God's rescue. This is the beauty of this. Look at God's rescue in chapter 19, beginning in verse 10. He says, But the angels reached out, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness, so that they were unable to find the entrance. Just catch that. Like Lot was doing what was right in his own sight. So were the men. And the counteraction to that was to strike them with blindness. So they couldn't even find their way to do what was right in their own eyes. The angel said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? A son-in-law, your sons and daughters, anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-laws thought he was joking. At daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. Because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, and they brought him out and left him outside the city. The scripture is about judgment, right? God's judgment on sin. I mean, that's what we see. When we see destruction, we go, the heading is judgment. But do you see how God's grace is evident? through it how about the fact that lot had separated himself from abram's family gone near sodom gone in sodom become a leader in sodom and yet god still sends the messengers to warn him what an act of grace did you notice how god pursued lot a sinful human with the hopes that he could restore him to blessing This is the theme of Genesis. We're going to see it over and over and over again. This is what God does. Did you see that God miraculously rescued Lot from the place he had put himself in? Lot was in a mess of his own making, yet the angels pulled him back into the house, struck the men of Sodom with blindness to protect Lot and his family, and then warned him, get out of here. There's a divine warning here. Judgment's coming. You can be spared. 
Sin is always a mess of our own making. And even in our stubbornness, God reaches for us to pull us out. I mean, this is a beautiful picture of God's grace right in the middle of a terrible scene about God's judgment of sin. And in verse 16, Lot hesitated. You see, there's a sense that Lot had a reverence for the things of God, yet the things of the world had a grip on him. I think that a lot of times that's how we live in our world today. And especially in a culture that is somewhat, you know, um, favorable to the idea of God here in East Texas. There's a lot of people who live in, with a reverence for God, yet sin has a grip on us. Like we know we've heard, yes, God judges sin, but there's a part of us who just says, but I'm going to just try to enjoy it for a little bit longer. Can I just hang on to it for a little bit? Can I hang on to this one thing for a little bit more? And we don't run away like Lot was graciously instructed to do. Get out, get your family, get out of here. To the point that in verse 16, the angels grab Lot by the hand. They grab his wife by the hand and they grab his daughters by the hand and pull him out. You see, sin in this mess of his own making, even his stubbornness, God reaches into it, gets elbow deep in Lot's mess in order to pull Lot out. This is a story of salvation. This is a, this is a picture of what God does for us. It reminds me of Psalm chapter 40. It was one of my favorite psalms. It says that God pulled me up out of the desolate pit where I had no hope. He lifted me out of the muddy clay and he set my feet upon a rock. This is what God does for a lot in this moment. Another chance, another act of grace, another opportunity to be restored to blessing. This is what God does. He pursues sinful humanity and he pursues you too. Even in the mess of your own making, God is pursuing you. You're here and maybe God's pricking your heart, saying, I've got mercy for you. I've got kindness for you. I've got compassion for you. I want to draw you out of that mess. I want to set your feet on a rock. I want to restore you to blessing so that you don't have to face the judgment that's coming. That's what God does for us. This is who God is. He rescues. And then man has an opportunity to respond. Look at the rest of chapter 19 with me. This is man's response. As soon, as soon as the angels got them outside, and one of them said, run for your lives. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains or you'll be swept away. But Lot said to them, doesn't seem like he's in a great position to negotiate right now, is he? But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please, your servant has indeed found favor with you, and you have shown me great kindness by saving my life, but I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me, and I will die. I'm thinking about like this you know, action movie shot of a guy running away from an explosion, and how somehow he always makes it away. Well, Lot's kind of in this moment where he's going, actually, I don't think I'm fast enough, right? So this is going to get me. Uh, so can you maybe protect me a little bit more? And he says this, I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, this town is close enough for me to flee to. It's a small place. Please let me run to it. It's only a small place, isn't it, so that I can survive? And he said to him, 
all right, I'll grant your request about this matter too and will not demolish the town you mentioned. Hurry up, run to it, for I cannot do anything until you get here, until you get there. Therefore, the city is named Zoar. Zoar showed up before. Zoar showed up when Lot was escaping Abram's family. And it says that he saw as far as Zoar, which we said when we studied chapter 13 is exactly where he will end up. Zoar can be translated small, like he says here, it's just a small place, small little, can't you protect it, it's just small. Just let me have that one little concession. But it also can be translated destruction, which is exactly what happens to Lot. His life goes into chaos not after Sodom is judged, but from the moment he left the household of blessing. From the moment he rejected God, his life spiraled out of control. And now we see the completion of it. This is where Lot wants to end up. Destruction. Holding on to a remnant of sin in his life rather than embracing the rescue that God had graciously given him. Chapter 19, verse 23. The sun had risen over the land when Lot reached Zoar. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. Early in the morning, Abraham went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain, and he saw that smoke was going up from the land like the smoke of a furnace. So it was, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. When the angels pulled Lot and his family out of Sodom, they said, run away. Get out. Don't look back. Lot, we've already talked about, negotiated this small space, and God, in his kindness, actually allowed him to have it. It didn't last for Lot. What we're going to see in the next section of chapter 19 is that even Lot was afraid to live in Zoar, and he ended up fleeing to the mountains. So he still didn't have his best interest in mind. He still didn't know what he actually wanted. He still didn't know what his ultimate end was going to be. He just knew what was right in front of him, and it never worked out. But then we see his wife also reject the instruction to run and not look back. And what happens to her? She turns into a pillar of salt. Have you seen the movie Raya? My kids love, love watching the movie in, in the van sometimes. And Raya, there's this kind of dark force that sweeps over people. And when it comes over them, they turn into stone. It's like whatever they were doing, like all of a sudden they're like a statue. Well, this is similar to what's happened now to Lot's wife. Because as she turns back to look back at her life of sin, she's turned into a pillar of salt. She becomes a monument to what it looks like to fail to run away from sin. To fail to get as far away from sin as possible. And she becomes a monument to that a pillar of salt. Alan Ross 
wrote this about this passage. If people crave the best of this world along with the world to come, they may receive neither. Think about that. What pool does sin have on you? If you desire the best of what our sinful world has to offer and think that somehow you can balance that with the world to come and what God longs for, blessing you for eternity in a relationship with him, then what's gonna happen is you'll drop both. You can't hold those in tension. God says run away from what the world offers and run to redemption and rescue that only comes through him. Away from sin, it's the word repent. It's the word the New Testament authors give to this. Repent, turn away from sin and turn toward God. Don't look back. That's the instruction here. This is the cautionary tale of chapter 19. And what we see in verses 30 through uh, the end of chapter 19, verse 38, is, is that Lot's family is still not well. Not well emotionally. They're not well physically. They're not well spiritually. And all of it traces back to his decision to go to Sodom and to live in Sodom. And now it has a generational impact Whereas at the beginning of chapter 19, he had offered up his daughters. Now his daughters are taking advantage of him. They're defiling him. And what happens is you, you've taken the family out of Sodom, right? But you haven't yet taken the Sodom out of the family. God desires to rescue you from sin, but not to stop there. God wants to redeem you from your past mistakes, God wants to restore you to a life of blessing for now and for eternity. But when you turn to him and away from your sin, you must not stop there. You must begin to refine your life and move toward holiness and to be like God. This is where we often fall short. Yes, we are sinners. Yeah, a lot of us believe that God saved us. Jesus is my savior. He gave his life on the cross for me. But from that moment of belief forward, the question is, where do you go from there? And the cautionary tale of Genesis 19 is to say, you cannot stop at simply belief. But true belief leads to holiness. True belief leads to obedience. True belief leads to wholeness and flourishing and fulfillment. And if you try to hold on to what you had before that and hold on to what God promises in your future, you might end up with neither. So how will you respond to this? How, how do you respond to God and his compassionate kindness and love and mercy that he has promised a day of judgment where all sin will be punished? where all evil will be conquered. And if you are in it, you will be swept away with it. It's a bleak picture. But the God of grace has reached out for you through his son Jesus to pull you up out of the mud that you've put yourself in, 
the mess of your own making, to set your feet on a rock on him alone that you can stand righteously before God again because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is the good news that is overarching Genesis chapter 19, a tough, tough chapter in the Bible, but that points us to a glorious truth, which is that even God's judgment, which is promised, is an act of grace and deliverance and hope for people who choose him. Will you choose him today? Peter, who knew Jesus well, walked with Jesus at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, walked away from Jesus. He doubted. He struggled. He didn't quite understand it. He had a low moment, but upon Jesus' resurrection, Peter was returned and restored to relationship with Christ, returned to blessing, gave his life on mission to live for Jesus. And we see his process of growth, even through the Bible, from the Gospels to the letters that he wrote to churches and to Christians. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, what he says, and I imagine him having this story in mind, he says, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wishing anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. This is the grace of God for you and for me. He draws us to repentance. So will you be like Lot and hold on to your sinful past with a death grip because it has a death grip on you? Or will you be like Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham to signify the covenant relationship that God had with him, that yes, he was not perfect, but God was using him to restore humanity to blessing. You can choose and the choice comes by Jesus Christ. If you choose Jesus Christ, you no longer hold on to the sinfulness of your past, but you embrace your calling to live with him and for him and to be an ambassador to bring as many people out of judgment as possible because the Lord is patient and every moment we have is another act of grace from him. So what will your response be today? Christian and Shelby are gonna come lead us in a short song of response and I want to encourage you and challenge you to lay it out before God. And you may even imagine yourself having two hands and two options. I can choose Jesus or I can choose sin. Which will I choose? And just hold those two things and ask God to give you the courage to choose Jesus. If we can help you make a step of faith toward Jesus today, we want to help you. I want to lead us in prayer and then we'll sing this song of response and give you a moment to just respond to God and what he's revealed to you today. Let's pray. God, your word is truth. And even though sometimes it's hard, it reveals the hardness in my own heart. I pray that the hardness that we saw today would lead us to repentance because of your kindness, God. We would turn away from sin and fully embrace by faith Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Rescuer. For every person today who needs to choose Jesus, God, give them the courage. Draw them by your Holy Spirit. 
For those who just need the courage to repent, God, give them that courage. I, I think about what David said in Psalm 51, that you restore the joy of salvation as we repent. God, we long for blessing and flourishing. Help us find it in you, in you alone. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.